You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What could very well happen is that we're going to see signs of more chaos, and if we do, then you want to stay out. It's Tuesday, October 20th, 1987, and the stock market the day before suffered its worst same-day crash ever. Western government leaders and stock market officials tried to talk the world's financial floodgates shut today. Alan Greenspan, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, calls Leo Malamud of the Chicago Mercantile Exchange and asks, Can you open? He doesn't like even the few seconds delay that he gets, nor the answer from the head of the source of liquidity for most of the world. We don't know. Panicky investors followed Wall Street, which ended its worst day 508 points down, a fall of 22%. CME is where stock futures are traded, commodities are traded, currency and gold is traded. It is the provider for businesses and people. Who need money? Not opening could trigger runs on banks, the collapse of the stock market, and economic disaster. Really, no one knows what it would do because outside of power outages or weather events that the market wouldn't read as anything more than those, it never has closed. But there's an issue. And the shock waves reverberated on to Japan, where the Nikkei average dropped 15%. And Australia, where almost 25% was wiped off share values. It was all too much for Hong Kong, where the authorities promptly suspended trading until next Monday to give everyone a chance to cool down. Hi, right off the bat, I want to let you know our website's www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. This is the final Arc of Commerce series. What is that? It's a series on the commercial history of the United States. It's a little play on words, Arc, A-R-C, Arc, A-R-K, because originally Arcs were used to bring flour from the breadbasket of Pennsylvania to major port cities. We talked about that in episode two. So there's six and a half to speak of episodes of the Ark of Commerce, and I'm put them all up on the website. So you can, if you want to listen from one through six and get a uh, little education on the commercial history of the United States, such as we can do it. There's a lot more we could have talked about, starting with the crash of 1929, going through American history back and forth into sea travel, into land travel and railroads, into the shutdown of commerce for different reasons. We experienced that again during COVID, didn't we? And into measuring commerce and finally the one that we just are hearing today. So check out www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com and go there. We have a Patreon site where you can support us. There's a link there on the website. Also want to announce we're part of Airwave Network 
which is a great group of podcasts, about 20 podcasts now, headed up by Ben Mathis, who does Kick-Ass News, very popular podcast with lots of listeners and great guests. He's had everybody on his show that you can think of. Another history podcast that's on the network is Ben Franklin's World, an excellent and very popular show. So, you know, it does mean you might hear some ads on some of these programs, but I also think it's going to give us resources that will enable us to have more episodes of My History Can Beat Up Your Politics eventually and more content available. Jim Cramer, the host of Mad Money, is not usually a source for My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, I'd say. But in this case, the host of Mad Money was on Wall Street, Black Monday, and the day after. And here's what he said. People always talk about Black Monday, but as bad as that was, believe it or not, it was the next day, Terrible Tuesday, that really scared the bejesus out of people. The market failed, Kramer thought, because it did not provide what it's supposed to do, price discovery. What's the buyer? What's the seller? You couldn't get a price on anything. And the futures market was saying stocks should be lower, much lower than they were in New York. It was scary stuff. The morning was already scary. For stocks, buyers can clear trades. That is, they can pay their sellers at the end of the week. Not a problem. Not so with commodities. Commodities transactions must finish by the end of the day. And if the Chicago Mercantile Exchange hasn't cleared its trades, it cannot open. The exchange clearinghouse, the body that makes sure that seller pays buyer at the end of the day, was owed $2.5 billion. Every morning at 5 in the morning, all debts must be paid or the exchange can't open. Malamud spent the night trying to get those payments. One giant commodities firm owed Chicago $1 billion alone. He calls that firm's chairman at 2 a.m. in the morning and asked for the money. An unusually large collection call. By 8 a.m., he had it. And really, most of the rest of it. $2.4 billion in total collections by 8 a.m. in the morning. That left $100 million. Malamud then called up the bank, Continental Illinois, that handled banking for the Chicago Mercantile Exchange and talked to the banker he'd worked with for decades. Leo, uh, we have over $2.4 billion. He knew that. But we are missing $100 million. He knew that. I know the customer. They're good for the $100 million. Can you float us? Sorry, Leo, we can't do that. For $100 million, you will shut us down? Come on, Wilma. The banker's name was Wilma. I don't have that authority. This market provides liquidity for investors, for companies, even nations. Uh, The Mexican peso is traded here, just as an example of one of many. It doesn't open. You have the potential to trigger a stock crash, a depression, who knows what. 
Even though 100 million isn't a lot in the scope of 2.5 billion owed, it's 10 times the authority of this banker to extend. And if for some reason the customer didn't pay, Continental Illinois as well as the exchange could all be in trouble. Hold on, Leo. Tom came into the office. Wilma was referring to the president of Continental Illinois, who happened to come in early. Okay, Leo, I've got approval. Yes, it's very possible, if the bank president didn't happen to be walking in the office early that day, that a major exchange couldn't open. It was one of many moments of intervention that seemed almost heavenly. The head of the New York Stock Exchange, John Phelan, almost becomes the president of the United States on October the 20th, 1987. I mean, at least it seems that way. The president's own chief of staff at a certain point will surrender control over to him, sort of. And there's this moment where, could it be this crazy? The head of the New York Stock Exchange tells the people around him, look at the computer monitor right now. And all of a sudden, the market goes up. I mean, that's how many people describe that day, and it's just one of the crazy moments that happens. In New York, there was a dread. Some didn't even want the market to open after the 500-point beating on Monday. Despite confidence in the White House, business leaders were gloomy. Deficits are a problem. We can't keep spending money we don't have, said Lee Iacocca, forgetting perhaps that a decade before he had gotten a bailout from the government. The weakening of the dollar is spoiling investments, said another executive. We don't know what tomorrow will bring, Edmund Pratt, Pfizer says. So much psychological togetherness on the upside, but also on the downside, Andy Grove of Intel thought, said another executive. I've always separated the real world from the stock world. But 500 points, that's real net worth that's gone. Realtors reported home sales put on hold. My buyers are terrified, said a New York realtor. Republican candidates seeking to replace Reagan were on the defensive this week. After all, it's a Republican administration, but it's worse for Bush, the current vice president, and a little less so for Dole and Pat Robertson, never big establishment types anyway, not as associated with Wall Street. The Reagan administration has recently cut $23 billion as part of a deficit reduction program. Democrats have criticized. After Monday's result, he says he'll work with Democrats in Congress to reduce the deficit. But both sides still blame each other. Democrats blame big tax cuts. Reagan blames Democrats for spending. Reporters are starting to compute the TikTok. What was the president doing during Black Monday? What's going on in the White House? Do they know what to do? Spokesperson Marlon Fitzwater says, There is no crisis atmosphere at the White House, which of course means everyone's thinking that there is a crisis atmosphere. An anonymous White House official tells the New York Times, We have no idea what to do about the stock market. It's like trying to catch a knife. And yet the stock market opens on Tuesday, and there is this joy that the market is up. IBM. Coke, GM, all lead. The Dow gains 200 points. That's eating into the 500-point loss on Monday, almost in half. By 10.30, as we said, everyone's optimistic. Some of them, particularly big blue-chip stocks, are moving up. But over in Chicago, where they sell futures, futures are discounted, pointed down, meaning they think there's going to be a drop in the market. And then it happens. 
the sell orders come after 10.30. The New York Stock Exchange has asked the program traders, those trades made by computers in large amounts by institutions, to avoid using the DOT, the computer system, today. It doesn't matter, in a sense. It does slow things down a bit. There's still sell orders. For starters, phones are working better at all those brokerage than they were on Monday, and you have individuals looking to get their cash. Plus, some institutions can still sell. There's institutions that don't need the computer at this point. They can send traders in and flood the exchange. Chicago keeps discounting stocks. Gold rises to $480 an ounce. By noon, the stock market not only loses that 200-point gain it made Tuesday morning, but loses an additional 30 points. John Fallon has major brokerage firms in his office. All he can do is watch the Quotrons, like everybody else. But he has thought about this before. He's thought about a major crash. He's actually been in the news, and people said this is a little crazy for a stock exchange president to be talking about. Then in 1986, he talked about the possibility of a big crash. He's thought about it, and he doesn't have a cure, but he has a scenario. It's a time buyer at best, but he's going to do it. Among the things dragging the market down is the risk, the fear of risk. And also, steps that were taken to limit and avoid that risk has actually, perhaps, caused more of it. At least one economist, Hyman Minsky, will say, stability is destabilizing. But there's more. Institutions had bought into a new type of strategy something that promised that they could reduce the risk of trading stocks on the market and make it manageable. Many were skeptical, but many had subscribed to it. So much so that at least 5% of the trades that occurred in New York and a much greater percentage of trades that occurred in Chicago on Monday and Tuesday were the result of this strategy, something called portfolio insurance. We'll talk more about Terrible Tuesday and what happened, why maybe it wasn't so terrible, and why maybe it was. But first, this is the Ark of Commerce, Part 6B, and we're going to get into the history of insurance in America, and why there was a belief that you could limit the risk of stock loss because you could limit the risk of many other things, including fire. You get insurance before you have an American Revolution. Philadelphia is the largest city in the American colonies, the most sophisticated city, and there's a problem. A lot of wooden buildings and a lot of people. And that meant houses went on fire, which obviously caused great distress. Benjamin Franklin, at this point, having sold his printing business and determined to be involved in various enterprises in the city, came up with a solution. Those who wished to protect their dear homes could purchase a subscription, a price per week to be insured by everybody else in the pool, which would be paid based on the damages that occurred to one's home. 
if there was a fire. And because he had a connection with the Philadelphia Gazette, which his company printed, he could advertise this program. All persons inclined to subscribe to the articles of insurances of houses from fire in or near this city are desired to appear at the courthouse where attendance will be given to take their subscription. It was an extraordinarily successful experiment. It was called the Pennsylvania Contributorship. For 80 years, Franklin's company existed. They never had a building. They met in taverns, had a board of directors, though, and many, many subscribers in the city. It set prices to be paid for damage to be buildings, loss of items, and even injuries and death. The Quakers in the city of Philadelphia at first resented this practice. The idea of selling one's own death didn't square with them. But since it could help widows and orphans, this objection was overcome. The contributorship would do more than just ensure. It would also insist on good practices or refuse insurance. And these good practices helped safety along. The contributorship would also assess fees and subscriptions not just a flat price, but based on the risk of what was being insured. And eventually, it would get offices in 1835, long after Franklin's death. Franklin would go on to found a life insurance company as well. Other products started to be insured in America. Uh, The first accident insurance appears in 1846. New York Life starts as Nautilus Mutual Life in 1841, a marine business and a fire and life insurance business. They also engaged up to 1846 in a much more sinister practice, policies on human slaves to pay the owner in case of their loss. By 1928, the Cass Gilbert designed New York Life Building at 51 Madison Avenue was a gem of the New York skyline at 34 floors. It's still is important today, at least in that area. Insurance was not invented by Franklin by any means, but he did perfect a system in the United States. The first auto policy is written in Massachusetts, where the industry had a foothold. Gilbert J. Looms purchases a policy from Traveler's Insurance Company for $1,000 to protect him if his car killed someone or damaged property. Loomis was an automotive pioneer, and his car, the Loomis Runabout, looked much like a chair or a carriage on four wheels. In writing the policy, crafty traveler's agents substituted teams, which carriages they already insured, for automobile. Loomis paid $7.50 for this policy. Today, travelers has 1.5 million auto policies. Americans did not have an insurance. The Code of Hammurabi in Babylonia in 1750 B.C., where shippers would pay an extra fee, an extra fee on a loan, so that if the ship didn't make it, they could cancel the loan. In the English-speaking world, Edward Lloyd's Coffee House on Tower Street, built in 1680, was engaged in the selling of insurance on shipping in London. Insurance in all forms is today a $5.8 trillion business. Travelers would add aircraft accident insurance in 1919 and would insure the Apollo crew in 1969. In addition to cars, homes, rental, there is health, 
long-term care, flood, fire, boat, mortgage, commercial, landlord rent, bike theft, identity theft, and now online banking and cybersecurity insurance. To make this work, there are 27,700 actuarials in the United States who play the role of Ben Franklin and his early Philadelphia associates, directing and assessing what is a proper fee and what is a proper premium and what is a proper payout based on risk and actual damages. These are all products we understand that could be insured. I mean, some of them are a little weird, like the Apollo space crew. But what if you applied the concept of insurance to something else, something we've been talking about? in this series of episodes, and that's the stock market. And that's exactly what enterprising firms tried to do in the 1980s. I mean, it starts in the 1970s. What one professor at Stanford realizes is that people are getting out of the stock market in the 1970s. And it's because they got burnt. It's certainly because they got burnt and prices had gone down. But he felt like more people were getting out of the stock market than really deserved to do so. That The risk was there, but people are overvaluing that risk. And there was no mechanism to help them get around that and put capital back into the stock market. And so he comes up with the concept, portfolio insurance. And in the 1980s, it really takes off. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. And you might wonder where do these terms come from? You know, Terrible Tuesday, Black Monday... We think that the first reference to the color in a day on the stock market is Black Friday, 1869. And it's actually an interesting scandal because it involves a president and the manipulation of a president, and that's President Ulysses Grant. And Jay Gould, master of the stock market, a very rich man looking to get richer, wants to corner the market on gold, works through the husband of Grant's sister, Jenny, so Grant's brother-in-law, who kind of convinces Grant that, you know, selling gold is going to be bad for um, farmers. You you ought not do it. And, uh, you know, between Grant and the Treasury Secretary, they actually stopped the trading. Now, Jay Gould is all behind this. He's cornering the market, buying up gold. He has a lot of reserves, and they plan to execute it on a certain Friday in September. What happens is Grant's brother-in-law overplays the hand and Grant gets wind of what's going on and he actually starts selling gold to foil this plan. But it's not, you know, it's too late to stop a market crash. And there's a huge market crash on Black Friday. I mean, it could be a whole podcast in itself, all of the events leading up to that. But the important thing to know is that um, in gold trading and in so many fortunes were lost in 1869 and it just becomes one of the many scandals of President Grant. Now, there are many good things that he did in office too, but it is something that's on voters' minds. They're not happy about it because something else happens, and that's that a lot of insurance companies 
and finance companies go out of business. The ones that have sticking powers, it turns out, have a unique type of insurance, which in any history of insurance we should be talking about. The survivors win. Something that came out of the ruins of Black Friday 1869 was Tontine Insurance. The survivors win was how Tontine Life Insurance was pitched in the 1870s. The name comes from Lorenzo Tonti, a Paris banker in 1653, who came up with the original idea, the essential principle of which was that you contribute premiums, as do others, create a pool, and the insurance company holds that pool, invests it in stocks and other things. And then in 20 years, you collect. That's pretty normal, but this was the key to Tanti's pool. When you survive, the survivors win, so your take is split with the survivors only, so that those who died earlier, or those who couldn't keep up with payments, their money is folded into the pool and you collect from that. The Equitable Insurance Company was the first to offer it. And its salespeople promised returns of up to 10.5% for these policies called life savings or a savings assurance, savings assurance policy. New York Life looked at Equitable's incredible growth with tortine funds and followed suit. One thing that became clear when the markets crashed in 1873 is that in that year's panic, These funds didn't crash. They kept insurance companies afloat, in fact. Those who didn't have Tontine didn't survive, went bankrupt. So by the time you get to 1900, there are $6 billion in Tontine funds. But it also points to a problem. These are large pools of money, and they weren't always watched closely in the 19th century. In fact, Tontine funds are some of the root of some of the finance problems, the greed, Large insurance companies became very influential. They paid off people. They kept poor accounting of what was owed. They paid policyholders very low dividends. It's first journalists and muckrakers that point out this problem with the Tontine insurance funds. Then the New York legislature, where many of these companies are based, gets a hold of it, particularly Senator Armstrong of New York. And the Armstrong Committee employs a young lawyer to look into the possible corruption of the insurance funds. His name is Charles Evans Hughes. To get him off this investigation, Republican leaders who are in cahoots with some of these funds offer to make him nominee for mayor of New York City. Charles Evans Hughes refuses. Soon, the taunting practice was banned in New York and then in other states. Hughes gets to work, investigates corruption, finds corruption, tunting funds, that and a public utilities investigation puts Charles Evan Hughes on a career path as a reformer in the nation's largest state. In fact, he's going to be successful in his investigation. Eventually, he's going to become governor, Supreme Court justice, and candidate for president of the United States and later chief justice of the United States. Uh, Tortines themselves, though, that concept may not have been all bad. A Journal of Economic History article in 1987 showed how they were better returns 
than the interest rates of many banks. Yeah, they may have been promising 10 and a half and delivering something like eight, but better than many banking funds. And something else, the collapse of this private tontine system for financing one's old age coincided with the necessity for state and eventually federal old age pensions. When instead of fire or auto accidents, the insurance is for loss in the stock market. And that's the danger. The premise is the same, but there can be some different consequences. Hain Leland, in the mid-1970s, got annoyed when he saw that because of small losses, people were leaving the market entirely and then weren't around when the market boomed again. The market was kind of becoming just a place for newcomers to lose money and insiders to make it. And not just people, but some big investors like institutions pulling out of the stock market. They particularly needed a mechanism that would allow them to do things in an institutional way. And we're talking about state pension funds, company funds, have to do things in a safe way. In 1983, he forms a company, LOR, that offers insurance protection. They would not guarantee a benefit for loss, like a fire insurance or traditional homeowners would. But they would engineer an investment strategy on behalf of their clients with an aim to do that, with an aim to make sure that the portfolio declined no more than 5% over three years. How would they do it? They would hedge that loss by adjusting the ratio of stocks to many markets as prices rise and fall. If stocks go down 8%, the insurance portfolio company would get you into the money markets. Interest adjusted, that loss will be no more than 5%. When stock prices rise, they'll buy stocks again to further try to buttress that loss. Computers are useful here for these minute calculations that are needed. So in 1984, when the SEC allowed stock commodity futures, LOR started using them to hedge, to sell a future, to offset a decline somewhere else. If the stocks fall... LOR can make sure their client stocks retain their value. And it worked pretty well from when they started in 1982 up until 1987. On Black Monday, the portfolio insurance weren't buying stocks like they should. Those who took the LOR policies realized that very little of their loss was, quote, covered. Portfolio insurance was not insurance. Still, LOR and Leland claimed that they at least earned half of their clients' losses with various strategies and protecting about $30 billion in assets. But this crash of 1987 is not just an American experience. Around the world, stock markets fell faster than a skydiver without a parachute. By Tuesday, though, it's scary at first. There were signs. Coca-Cola goes to Friday's price. General Electric goes higher. Then it all crashes. The Dow falls 225 points and millions of paper sell orders flooded the market. Some of the reason was a 1,000 miles away in Chicago. The S&P futures opened up 10.7% on Tuesday. Everything looking good. 
Now it was trading 19% lower than the values of stocks. This is one thing that Jim Cramer, who we referenced before, host of Mad Money, you know, at this time a trader is looking at and saying, you know, you look to those futures to see where stock prices were going. And the, the Chicago market's telling you stocks should be 20% lower. And even if you didn't kind of believe this sell signal, and some people were skeptical, there's also a real factor. You can actually get that money. In other words, it's like taking a dollar and buying a dollar for 81 cents. You can actually go to Chicago, you know, sell your stocks in New York, go to Chicago and buy them back in a sense at 81 cents on the dollar. And it didn't take long for many companies to do that. For institutional investors and traders and the like, you're talking about seconds. Phelan's very calm, the head of the New York Stock Exchange. He's in control. He's great on the TV interviews. Everyone's going to give him a lot of praise in the Post reports. The Brady Commission that's going to investigate all of this top and down gives him high marks. He knows how his mentors would have handled something like this. Be calm. But he's feeling it too. The most disappointing thing he said was this kind of vacuum that was existing where and you had all these sell orders without bids, the market could drop easily another 500 points. This lowering of prices after a slight rise in the morning was all the more disappointing because the establishment, the specialists in their trades, had tried to maintain a brave front to put prices higher in the morning, to talk up the value of stocks, the value of stocks after Black Monday, executing buy orders and taking on and carrying out those sell orders. The portfolio insurance and program traders blamed for Monday were reduced. They were asked not to use the DOT system, the computer system, for their trades. But in an odd way, this hurts because now, you know, the portfolio insurance goes two ways. So in blocking the DOT, the use of the computer system for portfolio insurance, which behind it, is some big institutional clients. They also couldn't take advantage of program trading to enhance the upward movement of the market. You know, in other words, buying stocks for their clients to limit the damage that they suffered from the stocks that they sold. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism all while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep, about the importance of talking to people who differ from you, and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. 
It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. John Fallon, the head of NYSE, is in contact with all sorts of people, the brokerage, his floor managers, specialists, the head of the New York Fed, even the president of the United States, the chief of staff, Howard Baker, told him, John, you're in the helm. We support you in everything you're doing. All the while, asking the White House legal counsel if he could write the appropriate memo that would give President Reagan the ability to close the New York Stock Exchange if needed. Phelan calls Leo Malamadan and tells him closing is a possibility. But they're both going to hear that conversation a little differently. Phelan said that all he said was that he'd have to consider it as one of many options, but that he didn't want to. Did New York play Chicago? That's been an open question since. The Chicago Mercantile Exchange keeps spitting out low prices. If Chicago stays open while the New York Stock Exchange closes, it's a disaster. It's a disaster. First of all, you don't know what prices are going to be. And you have a very speculative market on the futures side. There's no other place to sell but Chicago then. So everyone will sell there and it'll bring the market down. Melamed makes the tough decision. He goes out into the pit and tells him to shut down temporarily. Phelan's plan is simple. He's not going to shut down the New York Stock Exchange, but he will shut down certain heavily traded and high-value stocks, particularly those that appear on the indexes, to stop the bleeding. IBM shuts down at 11.30, Goodyear at 11.31, Woolworth at 11.29, Sears at 11.21. Something else happens. Usually, if any stock's trades are halted, they go immediately, transparently to the press, to Reuters, and tell them. They don't do it on Tuesday the 20th. It's not something they want to advertise. Alan Greenspan, the head of the Federal Reserve, releases a statement. Consistent with its responsibilities as the nation's central bank, we affirm our readiness to serve as a source of liquidity to support the economic and financial system. This is coupled by Corrigan, the head of the New York Federal Reserve Bank, usually the most important of the banks, calling bankers, calling individual banks, calling securities firms, letting everyone know, we're here, we'll support you, we'll do anything. You know, there's a little bit within the realm of prudence, a little bit of a statement of that, but we'll basically do anything. And... Ben Bernanke, writing later, said the signals work. The 10 largest New York banks doubled their lending. It sort of gives banks the security of a net if it's needed. They're not actually, you know, increasing their actual loans from the Fed that much on the 20th. It's more the banks. And um, one bank in particular, Citibank, lends out $1.4 billion, which is at least four times their normal. You know, Bernanke, who would become Fed chair himself later, notes that making these notes was not a money-making exercise necessarily for these banks. It really was the result of pressure and the result of thinking about the system as a whole. And it's an interesting thing that happens all through Terrible Tuesday is that after seeing what happened on Black Monday, you have the kind of, oh, how far should we go with this somewhat collective thinking? 
Black Monday, you see the results of the negative side of capitalism, right? Everybody doing something for themselves, which generally for millions of people means selling. And on Tuesday, you have the White House, banks, securities firms, individual investors starting to think about, well, wait a second, we need this structure to survive as a whole. It starts in a weird place because after the Chicago Mercantile Exchange closes during the day and what will be a temporary close, you still have open a second market in Chicago for commodities and for stocks, and that is the Chicago Board of Trade. And you can definitely think them as like the number two, not the winner. The CME is where most people are trading at the Chicago Board of Trade. They weren't even able to get the license for the Dow or the S&P to put on their index. So they have something called the MMI, which is basically just their own recipe of stocks that's made to kind of mimic the Dow. And it's not something people buy often. But with nothing else open, buyers start pouring in to this sort of generic stock futures product. Think of it almost like putting your thumb on the nozzle of a garden hose to get the spray to come out faster or or stronger. You've cut off part of the places where someone can buy and where they're able to buy is a smaller vehicle, right? A smaller venue. And that makes it look like it's surging. So the MMI and the Chicago Board of Trade starts surging up. And on Tuesday the 20th, it's like the only thing surging. At the same time, major companies, Merrill Lynch, Shearson and Lehman, Goldman Sachs, start buying their own stock. They also tell their clients, and they have many clients, buy your stock back now. They're not the only one. Signals come even from the White House. White House Chief of Staff Howard Baker is telling individual CEOs, please buy back your stock now. And this all starts around noon. This from uh, Diana B. Henriquez, a first-class catastrophe. The road to Black Monday, the worst day in Wall Street history. The green flash showed up on the trading desk at Solomon Brothers in Manhattan. By then, the desk was a hive of activity. Sometime around noon on that frightening Tuesday, Stanley Shopcorn, the legendary head of the firm's equity trading desk, finished a phone call and bustled out of his glass-walled office. He told his legion of traders to start making bids to buy, and they went to work. Shopcorn had just spoken with Robert Munchen, his counterpart at Goldman Sachs, and they had decided, both of them, they would step in as big buyers of the major stocks that have been halted on the New York Stock Exchange. They wanted to make a profit, obviously. They also had to consider the good of the system. This is an interesting point that Henriquez makes, is that we think of the last people who would think collectively, right, are financial markets, but that's not really true. Because even if they're going to lose a little, this is what makes these guys their bread and butter every day. And for a lot of people, they know, and if it were to crash, That's not going to be good, so thing to think about. An enormous number of stocks have been halted, more than 160 at one point. As the clock crept towards 12.30 p.m. with the Dow trading at 38 points below its disastrous close on Black Monday, Phelan and several senior staffers simply stared at the blank, big monitor screen at the credenza behind his desk. The market just has to rally, he thought. The fact remains... Diana Henriquez says, while the market had fallen on Monday, it had almost fallen apart on Tuesday. 
All that had saved it was a makeshift web of trust, pluck, and improvisation, and perhaps a few bits of inspired subterfuge here or there. All of this happens. We've kind of, you know, (laughs) think about it as a room of people where there's one really negative person, and we've just told Mr. Negative to shut up, right? That's the S&P futures on the CME, right? We've shut it down. So it's not available to be this kind of stain on the stock market right now. So you have that shut off. You have certain stocks you can't even sell in New York. And this is going to be frustrating. And economist Minsky is going to say this is really the end of capitalism. These kind of market freezes don't allow buyers and sellers to transact efficiently. It's the market. A lot of interference occurs on the 20th. But all of this is combining. And so, you know, one version of the story has... Some of these traders saying, and Fallon was there, and he's looking at his monitor and says, look, it's going to happen now, and boom. Just a few moments ago on Wall Street, the Dow Jones Index was 126 points up after a day of wild gyrations. The White House insisted there is not a crisis, and the United States Central Bank confirmed that it was ready to help support the economy and the financial system. Coke, IBM, Merck. USX, all up, up, up. GM is up 15%. Union Carbide, 32%. Johnson Johnson up. Minnesota Mining, that's 3M nowadays, up, up. Bethlehem Steel, up 18%. And you can tell these stocks are all from the 80s. At 1 o'clock, the Chicago Mercantile Exchange reopens the S&P pit, the spooze pit, as they call it. NYSE is clear, not gonna, clearly not going to close. Futures are now reopening higher. The market gains 115 points between 12.30 and 1 on Tuesday. It'll rise to as much as 170 points in the afternoon, then settle down to a 102-point gain, acceptable for everyone when the bell closes on Tuesday and a lot of sighs of relief. Two leading American banks canceled the half-percent rise in interest rates they introduced last week. And the United States and West Germany kissed and made up after last week's public row over interest rates, which Mr. Lawson blamed for fueling this week's investor jitters. Here you often hear that many people made up their one-day loss in a week. And that's true with a very few people. Diana B. Henriquez, author of A First Class Catastrophe, but only misinformed hindsight, sees that midday turning point as the end of the crash. For all of the people involved, it was simply a fragile rally that let the market stumble towards the closing bell on Tuesday. It'll still be a rough week. And what we don't hear about in the story of um, Black Monday often is that there were a few more dips in the next months caused by at least a lot of blame going to these kind of large program trading outfits. It drops on November 30th, drops on December 28th both in 1987. Then there's a large drop on January 8th, 1988, of more than 140 points. Everyone's scared. And in April, when there's another drop where program trading is blamed, the New York Stock Exchange Institute's new rules to regulate oversee program trading, where program trading, people who are using any kind of program trading have to tell the exchange what they're doing before they do it report on their activities. Um, That and pressure from institutions, we don't want to be in this program trading anymore, is enough to get most of the major financial houses. You still have Bear Stearns using program trading and portfolio insurance for a while. 
but mostly it's a concept that no longer exists. What is the use of stock markets if it causes so many problems? They crash. We keep watching the Dow. They make presidents look bad. I mean, is it really just to make a few people rich if it crashes and then can trigger depressions? If the people staring into glass windows and maniac traders can't do anything about it? What happened in 1987? Why did they just shut it all down? Why did they shut it down after 1929? The answer isn't all that complex. It really isn't. For all the historic headache and stock market crashes that you'll hear about. And since this 1987, there's been a couple of them. Most notably, the Great Recession, the coronavirus crashes, and the flash crash of 2010. And there's been others. For all the historic headache, absent the capital liquidity they provide, you'd probably have to look at your workplace and select a few people around you who do not have jobs. You might not even have that workplace. That company may have not been able to obtain needed capital to even start or operating capital to keep going. As many businesses operate on corporate paper, a kind of corporate credit card of sorts. They don't actually operate on the cash that comes in from customers. They operate on a kind of credit card basis to keep things afloat. After all, got to make payroll. Customers sometimes pay late. These are all provided by markets. Probably wouldn't be available in great numbers without them. You'd also have to scratch your own job if you work for most startup or new companies. While the founders of the company could have dumped all their own money in to get that company started and give you a job, it's not likely. And since banks borrow from equity markets that lend that cash, it creates more cash for cars, homes, and credit cards. It democratizes the investment too. For example, how could you really manage to get involved in Amazon, Facebook, or IBM and own a piece of it? You'd have to approach people and invest without an intermediary. Stock market allows that. And it's much easier than investing in a company. If you had a friend who had a business and you could do these type of private equity deals and you write him a check for 5000 what if you wanted that money tomorrow? What do you say, you know, Charlie, you know what? I know your bar's not doing that well, but I want my 5000 back. Oh, I can only give you four. You know, hey, look, with a stock market, it's liquid. You can sell your stocks. Now, it might be not at the same price. But you can sell your stocks and get your money. All of those things are increasing the amount of investors that there can be, the amount of investment that there can be to have this free exchange. Even if you want to be a financial monk and not trade yourself in stocks, stocks that create things like infrastructure, railroad, they're going to be having an effect on your life either way. What else happens from Black Monday? You'll see pressure on the Glass-Steagall law where now they're saying, see, we banks could not get involved in stocks because you told us in the 30s we weren't allowed to do that. And during the Clinton administration, that Glass-Steagall law will be removed. Many people point to it when it comes to 2008. Here's what Henriquez says. They didn't learn anything 
from 1987. She writes the book after the Great Recession and says it's partially the result of things that weren't fixed from 1987. The policymakers in Washington and the Titan players on Wall Street thought the lesson of Black Monday was that the market's machinery was too slow. Where does this leave us today, 30 years after Black Monday? Exactly where we are then, in a storm-tossed lifeboat in which all the passengers are shackled together. Of the major mutations that were central elements of the Black Monday crisis have become more deeply embedded in Wall Street's genetic code. Computer-driven trading has accelerated. The human middlemen of 1987 are gone. Armies of Titan investors whose scale and speed shocked regulators in 1987 have grown larger, faster, and more powerful ultimately measuring the race to market in nanoseconds and wielding global portfolios worth trillions of dollars. Fragmented and feuding regulatory agencies continue to defend their political turf, aided by rigidly ideological lawmakers on the right and the left. As they squabble, the unregulated financial derivatives of the 1980s have mutated and spread around the world, and the arcane investing strategies strategies that hastened the march of Black Monday have become more obscure. Jens Corson Jackworth and Mark Rubenstein would offer inconvertible proof that 1987 didn't happen. According to their probability formula published in 1995, the likelihood of the crash was 10 to the 160th power. That means even if one had lived through the entire 20 billion life, 20 billion year life of the universe and expressed it and experienced it in 20 billion big bangs, the probability is viewed as an impossibility. said the chair of the Chicago Merck, I wish I would have known this comforting piece of wisdom at the time of the crash. This episode, uh, we our website is at www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. This finishes up the arc of commerce. And uh, remember to check out Airwave Network and all the great shows on there. Thanks for listening. As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. 
Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.